0: Paul, going into chapter 2, as as we started in chapter 1, he's began to build a case uh, in defense of his apostleship, the authority that he has in Christ, uh, and he's also defending the gospel of grace uh, because of all that's happened in the region of Galatia and those churches there. Um, Yeah, and so Paul wants to basically make this point that he's not inferior to but he's equal in every way to the original 11 apostles that are down in Jerusalem. Uh, he's demonstrating that he's, he wasn't self-appointed. He just didn't decide one day that he would be uh, sent out by himself. The word apostle means to be sent out, but in fact, he was called of Christ, and then Christ sent him to the Gentiles. Uh, also, he wants to make it clear that he was not appointed by the other 11 which would actually grant him quite a bit of authority uh, as an apostolic delegate. But he's, he's separating himself from that as well. So I'm not a delegate of the apostles. I'm completely autonomous, totally independent. Christ called me just as he called them. Okay? And um, I was handpicked on the road to Damascus. And then, as he was talking about in chapter 1, he says that afterwards, the all things related to the New Covenant, otherwise known as the gospel, he said it was, it was divinely revealed to me during this time that I had in Arabia. I didn't go to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of the apostles so that they could teach these things to me. He says, "I received it directly from the Lord. Okay. I am as, as equal in every way, in every way, in regard to my apostleship with them. And, uh, and the reason that he's doing this, as we've been talking about, which is important because we need that context to go all the way through the book of Galatians, is that after Paul had left Galatia, okay, he planted the churches on his first missionary trip, he revisited them later, and, uh, and then after he left the second time, the Judaizers moved in. Okay? And the Judaizers are Jewish men who were preaching a false gospel by which Paul makes very clear in chapter 1 by their gospel, nobody can be saved, and uh, he's heard about this happening in Galatia, and now it has to be addressed. Now, it is true, though, that uh, this would not have been a problem if the people in Galatia had fulfilled their responsibility, and that is not listened and forced them out. Amen? Now, I, I'm very thankful that over the years here at Calvary Chapel, uh, we have had people come in in similar fashion and they usually make it about two Sundays and I don't have to say anything to them. Uh, They're mingling with the people in our fellowship and the people of the fellowship say, that's not what we believe. And then that person is made to feel, because what they're doing is they're not just uh, somebody searching, they're somebody coming to infiltrate and to poison uh, and it's detected by the people of our fellowship and then that poison is made to feel very unwelcome. Okay, now, that is a sign of a healthy church. Okay, so you guys have done your job. I, I really like not getting involved in everything that happens. Okay, every little hiccup and, and all of that. I love it that the church is taking care of business. As Paul said, I'm confident, Romans chapter 16, that you're able to admonish one another and uh, also that you're able to police uh, the fellowship in regard to trouble. Okay, so uh, I'm really thankful for that. But the Galatians... Uh, they did not do that. And what was happening was they were uh, in kind of listening to this garbage. Uh, they were recognizing apostolic authority from these false apostles, and then they were giving in to this gospel that they were preaching. And uh, so Paul, if he's going to recover these people that he loves so dearly, uh, they must be restored to the true gospel. And if they are to be restored to the true gospel— it is essential that they recognize his apostolic authority, because without his authority, there's no reason for them to listen. There's no reason at all. So Paul is going to, uh, in chapter two, he's going to share with the Galatians uh, something that had happened initially in Antioch, up north in Syria, okay, where he was. So it was kind of Paul's headquarters, at least initially, and then that problem then made its way to Jerusalem because he brought it there. Because we know Paul, okay. He's gotta address the issues, okay? And, um, and it's all interesting to me because all of these events happened shortly before Paul returned to Galatia the second time, yeah. The same perverted gospel that was infecting Galatia had come to Antioch when Paul and Barnabas were ministering there, and so they needed to go to Jerusalem and confront it, okay, bring it to everybody, and, uh, and get it done with. The story uh, told in Galatians 2 is also told by Dr. Luke in Acts 15. And of course, Luke's account is more detailed as a historian. Uh, Paul is giving the account so that he can make his case from it. So uh, we're going to have fun kind of harmonizing those two, okay? But there's facts in both I think are important uh, for the overall context of Galatia. But also for all of church history. What happened in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, has absolute authority on the faith of Christianity today, okay? Absolute authority. And so, anyway, um, so let me just give you a real quick timeline so that ho- hopefully that'll help with the harmonization. Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch and they travel through uh, parts of southeast Turkey and the region of Galatia, first missionary journey and they return to Antioch, okay? And while they're there, the Judaizers come, and they begin to spread that same false gospel among those in Antioch. And so Paul and Barnabas then go down to Jerusalem, and there the whole issue is cleared up regarding the gospel and Paul's apostolic authority. And then Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, and then sometime after, Paul then takes what was settled in Jerusalem, Okay? And he takes it back through all the churches that he had planted through Turkey, the region of Galatia, and the letter, the decree is read to them. And then Paul leaves and he heads, memory he goes to Troas. He crosses the Aegean Sea and we have him in, in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Antioch, and then Corinth. And then Paul writes his letter to the Galatians. Somehow news has caught up with him as it had a way of doing. So now he's writing this letter to them. These events uh, actually occurred about 14 years after Paul's first visit to Jerusalem as a believer, uh, which we talked about last week. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read our primary text to you from Galatians, and then I'll read Luke's account, and then we'll draw out Paul's defense from them. But I only want you to stand for Galatians 2, okay? (laughs) So please stand, if you're able. Be reading God's word to you, Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10. You are welcome to stand all the way through uh, the reading of Acts 2 if you want, or Acts 15 if you want, but you're going to be standing a while, okay? Here's Paul's argument. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, that is to Antioch, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me, but on the contrary. When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised that is the Jew also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles and when John Cephas or when James Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that had been given to me they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, it's probably true that the majority of all people in this church already accept Paul's apostolic authority. Uh, but there may be some here that are struggling to understand all of this. And um, so I pray, Lord, that the truth of your word would come across, that by your Spirit you would... Reveal it to their hearts, Lord. And Lord, for those of us that that already embrace the scriptures as the word of God, I pray that you would encourage us accordingly and that the same conviction of Paul would fall upon us, that the gospel of grace is the most precious thing there is and that anything else, it's dangerous, Lord. And give us a heart to defend it, Lord. Give us a mind to know and understand it and help us to believe and trust even more. So Lord, thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, please be seated. And I'm going to read now Dr. Luke's account to you. It's Acts 15, 1 through 31. It's quite a long reading, but I believe that it's important. I believe every Christian should know Acts 15 very well, at least the conclusions of it. So Paul has returned in the context here in Acts 15 uh, from his first missionary journey And he's back in Antioch. He's been there for quite some time. And while there, it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, it's Luke's way of saying there was an argument, They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question, this issue. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them, but... Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostle and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they." Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return and will build the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from things strangled, and from blood. Because Moses has had, throughout many generations, those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. That last comment deserves a little bit of comment. We want them to abstain from these things, he says, because Moses has been preached in all of these Gentile cities. And then he lists a whole bunch of things that um, are really good to abstain from, by the way. But there are also things that were offensive to the Jews that if the Gentiles participated in any way, it would just create a greater barrier between the Jews and the Gentile converts. And uh, when you go to Ephesians, Paul talks about, through Christ, this wall of separation has been taken down and that he's seeking uh, one body between the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? So anyway, there's... The account, so remember as we started there, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch sometime after their first missionary journey. And from Acts 15, we find that all of the apostles agreed with Paul and Barnabas, that the Gentiles, should not be circumcised or keep the law of Moses. It's very clear in the text. Okay? The apostles said, those men went out teaching that, we did not send them. Okay? We did not send them. And then verse 28 of Acts 15 says that more importantly, that the the decision made by the apostles was the decision of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through the apostles to come to this decision. So the matter was presented to the apostles. The decision was made by the apostles as they're led by the Spirit. And then a letter, a decree was sent to all the churches. Okay, So let me read that to you real quick. Then it pleased the apostles, verse 22, and elders at the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the the same things by word of mouth, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the the multitude together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Yeah, no kidding. No circumcisions today. Okay. The men of Antioch were very, very happy. So the decree goes out by the Holy Spirit. You guys, this means that the issue has been finalized. It's infallible. It's authoritative for all people, all places, for all time. Amen? It's done. It's not to be revisited again by the apostles. Circumcision and the law of Moses should never be imposed on Christians ever. That was the apostolic decree. Now, what is most interesting about all of this is a short while later, this same letter was taken back to all of those churches that Paul planted. You guys, it was read to the churches of Galatia. It was read to them. It says, when Paul returned to that region, Luke says this in Acts 16, 4 through 5, and as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem, So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. But here's the problem. Even though the apostles had sent out a decree settling this issue, many of the Galatians afterward, not before, but afterward were being led astray when those false teachers came to town just a short while later. That's astounding. That's astounding. After being discipled by the apostle Paul and after receiving this decree, they were still led astray. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 1, 6-7, he says, I marvel, I'm astonished that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. It's astonishing. It wasn't that long ago that the decree was shared And yet these people are deserting Christ for a gospel. I mean, what good news has circumcision in it? It's insane. And obedience to the law of Moses. It's all the opposite of Paul's gospel, and it's contrary to this decree. So the Judaizers, you guys, they must have been first-rate deceivers. They must have been. To be discipled by Paul, of all people, and then to have a decision come down directly from the apostles collectively, it's crazy. And you know, more than ever, the church needs to be on guard, knowing the scriptures and, and looking out for one another, because you know, these kinds of heretics today, they're a dime a dozen. They're a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. Let's return to our text, and we'll look at Paul's defense. Verse 1, Galatians 2. Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. Now, I need to uh, apologize first for something I said last week. Um, not things seriously bad, you'll all forgive me, I'm sure. I messed up some dates, yeah, and I feel kind of stupid for it, but um, yeah, dates beginning with Paul's conversion. I said that Paul's conversion was in 37 AD, it's not, it's not heresy, it's just not true, okay? And, uh, and that his first visit to Jerusalem uh, as a believer was uh, in 40 AD, it's incorrect, so I'm sorry. We need to subtract three years from all of those dates. Uh, Paul's conversion was about, about in 34 AD. And so his first visit to Jerusalem as a believer was approximately 37 AD. Uh, some of you are like, I don't care what AD it was. Those dates make no difference to me. Uh, they're important. Um, and now because of Galatians 2, we want to count 14 years into the future uh, from that visit to Jerusalem by Paul when he was a believer. And it brings us to about 50 or 51 AD okay now I say about because Paul didn't give precise dates all right Uh, he doesn't even mention the months or the time of year so it's just approximates so with all the numbers we have the the time stamps throughout uh, Luke's narrative uh, Paul would have returned to Jerusalem in about 50 51 AD uh, about 15 years since his first visit to Jerusalem as a believer And this time around, as the text says, Barnabas was with him and Titus was brought along. Titus was brought along for fun. Paul's so funny. Verse 2, and I went up by revelation and communicated, now listen, to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Now Paul says here that he went up by revelation And in Acts 15.2, it says that he was sent by the church in Antioch, both are true. You know, the church sending them as delegates was confirmed uh, by way of divine revelation. God wanted Paul in Jerusalem uh, to settle this matter regarding Gentile circumcision. And I imagine that for Paul, hearing directly from the Lord in this regard made him uh, a bit more courageous. How about you? Okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem And we're going to present something to the apostles that is the most important issue in in world history. Be good to hear from the Lord. And he was so courageous that he took with him an uncircumcised Gentile who was a believer. I love that about Paul. This is what we know about Paul. If there's a point of controversy, let's just get it out there, okay? I'm going to bring one of my subjects. And so for the court, here's exhibit one. (laughs) Titus, I I hope Titus understood what he was getting into. And uh, so he's on display, uncircumcised Gentile who believes that he's saved by faith alone, okay? Now in verse two, Paul kind of subtly mentions that he met with two different groups uh, when he was there in Jerusalem. The first group is identified as them. That is who he met publicly. And the second group is identified as those that he met in private. Now, in light of Acts 15.4, then consisted of the whole church in Jerusalem with the elders and the apostles uh, coming together. It was a public meeting. It was held as sort of a reception for Paul and Barnabas. To, uh, it was festive to talk about all that God had been doing throughout the Gentile world. But according to Acts 15.5, it was at this public meeting that was supposed to be festive that those of the sect of the Pharisees piped up They piped up, objecting to Paul's gospel, and they were demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. So there's all the festivities going on. Everybody's excited. As they were in Phoenician Samaria, as they traveled south, and then this wet blanket just goes, whap, on all of it. They were, in effect, saying Paul's gospel is not legitimate without circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. If the Gentiles are not circumcised... And if they're not keeping the law, all your work is in vain. None of them are saved. Those are fighting words for Paul, aren't they? Yeah. So now it is imperative to have this other meeting, which is more private. He says, but with those of reputation, that is with the apostles and elders of the church, so that Paul can state his case and defend the gospel of grace, because he is not about to let his time among the Gentiles go to waste. Okay. So verse 3 he says, and this is a comment back on the Pharisees piping up, he says, not, yeah, not even Titus, who was with me, being a, a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So that outburst of the Pharisees and them coming at Paul with this criticism. So Paul is saying there's nothing in their argument that was compelling enough to persuade Titus in any way that he should be circumcised in order to be saved. Not at that moment there in Jerusalem, not when the Judaizers were in Antioch, never. Titus was certain that he was saved by faith, through grace alone. Well, grace through faith. Now, it should be pointed out uh, what circumcision meant at this time. okay? Because it doesn't mean to us as Westerners what it did to Jews in the first century. Okay? Uh, it wasn't for cosmetic purposes. It wasn't for sanitary or hygienic reasons. And I've heard people read that back into the Old Testament. It's not true, it was purely religious. To get circumcised was a physical sign that someone belonged to the covenant of Moses and that they were now subject to all of its laws and regulations. And that's what is being communicated to these Gentiles. They needed to be circumcised and they needed to become subject to the law of Moses. But Paul says this, he says, I testify to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Galatians 5, 3, that's what circumcision meant. So circumcision wasn't an end in itself. You didn't get circumcised and call it good, I'm saved. Just like uh, in a similar fashion, people might say, well, I'm baptized, I'm saved. No, you're not. Not by, not by means of baptism, not by means of circumcision, Okay. Titus wasn't persuaded about any of this stuff, It's by faith alone. So then after this ruckus, Paul and Barnabas meet with the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem church and that's the conference in Acts 15, 6-21, where Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, the half-brother of Jesus, made their case for the gospel of grace and in the end everyone sided with Paul. That's very important. Verse four through five, Paul says, and this occurred, all of this mess, because of the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, that is, at the Antioch church, the liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage, that is, to the law, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, pay attention, in verse four, Paul calls these Judaizers false brethren. They're false brethren. Whereas Acts 15, 5, Luke referred to them as some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. Now Luke is referring to their profession before the conclusion of the council, but Paul, he's just calling it what it is in reality, regardless of their profession. Paul doesn't care what anybody professes necessarily. He wants to look at all of the details of their profession. They confess faith, but when their faith was defined by circumcision, obedience to the law of Moses, their profession was in the wrong thing, and therefore, they are not believers. They are false brethren. And Paul says that these false brethren, they snuck into the Antioch Fellowship. They snuck in, you know, pretending to be you know, no one of consequence, like they were just visitors. That's happened here multiple times. I'm just visiting. Okay. But what they were doing was that they were there scrutinizing the faith of the Gentiles, uncircumcised, not keeping the law. And Paul says they were spying out our liberty, which we have in Christ. That is to say, Christ is the source of our liberty. But they, these guys were watching the fellowship. They were not keeping the Jewish dietary regulations. One mark against them. They weren't circumcised. That's a big deal. They weren't keeping the Jewish Sabbath. They weren't paying tithes to the temple. They weren't dressing like Jews. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't like us doing the things that we do, and therefore they must be wrong. Never heard anything like that before in my life. (laughs) The confession of the Gentiles wasn't good enough for them without circumcision and the law, and so they began to try and correct the Gentiles, okay? Circumcision, law which Paul equates with bondage, that is slavery. And he's going to use that language through the entire book of Galatians. If you submit yourself to the law of Moses, you're enslaving yourself to it. It's, it's back to bondage, Paul's basically saying. This is the perverted gospel that Paul mentions in Galatians 1. It's a distortion of the truth. And so Paul says, verse 5, "...to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you." And Paul, is, he knows that allowing the doctrine of the Judaizers to be heard or obeyed at any level, it's a danger to the gospel itself and to those who believe it. So Paul says, we didn't give them the time of the day. Okay? Once we heard it, we shut them down. We got in their faces, we, con- we confronted the false doctrine, which of course burst into an argument from which Paul would not back down. Okay? There's no way that that perversion is going to spread among these people. It needs to be silenced. And so it, it was at that time that the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to get this issue before all of the apostles. And when Paul was with the apostles in Jerusalem, he says this in verse six, he says, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Now, in the English translation, this comes across somewhat derogatory, but Paul actually means uh, no disrespect to the apostles. He's just saying that whatever the other apostles had to say ultimately made no difference to me. Made no difference to me because I received the gospel and my marching orders directly from Jesus. These are strong statements from Paul. Remember, he's trying to defend his apostolic authority to the Galatians. And so Paul's saying, no one could persuade me Otherwise, I won't listen to anything that's different than what Jesus told me. He says the, he's saying the apostles didn't have authority over me in any way. All of them are subject to Christ and Christ's gospel just as I am. They had nothing to add to me. Christ gave me everything that I need. I'm equal to them. But when we look at the conclusion of what happened in Jerusalem, it's, it's exactly what Paul wanted. It's exactly what he wanted. And it was the only thing he would accept. And that was that the other apostles recognize and endorse both Paul's apostleship and the truth of the gospel that he was preaching. That's exactly what they did. Verse 7 through 10, he says, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James... Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, that is to the Jews. Everything was in harmony in Jerusalem, every bit of it. And at their conclusion, they recognized that Christ had commissioned Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. He worked effectively in Peter for the Jews He worked effectively in Paul for the Gentiles. There's no denying it, that it was all a work of God, all of it. So James, it says, and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, they extended the right hand of fellowship to show that we're all in one accord on this. We all agree, yep, we're all equal. We have different callings, you to the Gentiles, us to the Jews, but we're all equal, yep. They couldn't appoint Paul, and they couldn't remove him from his office, and Paul wasn't going to resign, right? Yeah, all they could do is recognize his calling and acknowledge his authority to preach the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to negotiate. He didn't go there to arrive at a consensus on what the gospel is. He wasn't. He was going there to confirm it, to uphold it, to defend it as it was revealed to him. So here's the point that Paul is making in his defense to the Galatians. He's saying the very issue of doctrine troubling you Galatians is the very issue that I've already brought to the apostles at Jerusalem. And they sided with me 100%. So what in the world are you doing? What in the world are you doing considering circumcision and bondage to the law of Moses? Are you nuts? Are you crazy? And he'll use language like that later on in the book. Yeah. And so what's interesting is that none of this should come as any surprise to the Galatians. None of it. Because Paul had already discipled them and he delivered that letter to them. What he's saying here should only confirm what they've already been told. And so Paul's gospel of grace stands in his apostolic authority confirmed. Now I love this. It's it's all so beautiful. You know, the issue was forever settled by those who were called by Jesus to establish the faith for us. The issue was so completely settled that Jude says that the faith once and for all was delivered to the saints. Jude 1.3. Once for all delivered to the saints. And so he then, Jude, encourages us to contend earnestly for it. I encourage you to, to do it without as much contention as possible as you contend, but we ought to contend. And because of the clarity of the gospel, we can confront any variance of it with confidence. With confidence. And like Paul, when someone teaches a false and perverted gospel within the context of our fellowship, or you see it going out to a young believer especially, we should confront them and shut them down. We should. It's exactly what Paul did. It's exactly what he commissions pastors and elders to do. He says that an elder must hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, so that he may be able, by sound teaching, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, Judaizers, whose mouths must be stopped, Titus 1, 9 through 11. Look, because the gospel is so clearly defined, it should be confidently defended. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, You guys, everything else leads to destruction. Literally, literally. It's it's not a scare tactic, okay? You know, poison should not be played with and we should not allow the innocent or the naive to play with it. And whenever we see someone else offering it to someone else, we have a moral obligation as Christians to address it. And that's why Paul did all that he did. He believed that he and every Christian was a guardian of the gospel and were responsible for the souls of other people. False doctrine must be confronted. You know, when it comes to the gospel, you guys, it's one issue that we can divide over. You know, everybody's into the ecumenical movement these days. We have unity for the sake of unity, but it's always at the expense of truth. But there are some things that we just can't have fellowship around, and a false gospel is one of them. But then, you know, there's other people, they're willing to part from friends over a host of issues, differences in theology and philosophy, parenting, politics, you know, you name it. I can remain friends with people through a whole lot of different stuff, but one thing that I will never tolerate is someone in the fellowship of this church who teaches a false gospel among God's people. We can divide over this. If there's no repentance on their part, there's no place for fellowship because you know there's nothing so precious as the, the true gospel, and there's nothing so dangerous as a false gospel. The true gospel was meant to rescue humanity from being condemned. Jesus said hey, in John 3, he says, they're already condemned. I've come to rescue them from it. And the gospel of grace is the only way that it can happen. So like Paul, we shouldn't yield for a moment to what is false teaching. But also like Titus, we should never be compelled within ourselves to yield to their demands. Don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to say, I'm not, I was going to quote a funny movie. I'm not going to say it. Just don't listen. Don't listen to their demands. You know, trust me, over the years in ministry and outside the ministry, people have tried to change my view of the gospel, the gospel of grace. And you know what? Many of them are all different. There are more strange distortions of the gospel today than there ever was in the early church. We have become so creative, so creative. Yeah, so more than ever, Christians need they need to understand and trust the gospel that was handed down to the apostles Not not one that's coming through some voice today. Now, if you don't feel like you have a handle on the gospel of grace, you should in the next couple weeks. Because Paul is going to tell us everything that the gospel is, along with everything that it is not, and that's going to begin next week. We're going to get rolling with it next week. Next week, we'll transition from Paul's uh, defense of his apostleship to Paul's definition of the gospel of grace. Uh, he's going to bring his apostolic authority to a climax because he's going to have to get in the preeminent apostle's face, Peter, and confront him and rebuke him in front of a whole bunch of people. And that will settle the issue <laughs> regarding his authority. Okay? And then that will immediately lead into his case for the gospel of grace. Okay? So the rest of chapter 2, I think, is when the fun begins in Galatians. And uh, so I would encourage you to read ahead. Verses 11 through 21. And uh, I think Paul makes a great case for his own apostleship. Most of you believe that. But I will enjoy making a case with him for the gospel of grace. All right? Go ahead and stand up. I'll get you out of here. If I lost you in any of the chronology and synchronizing and all that, uh, that's just too bad. No. Uh, You can come talk to me afterwards, and uh, I'll try to walk you through it again. I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to let these guys lead us through some more worship. Well, Lord, I, I think more than ever the, 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 the apostolic conviction of what the gospel is and what it is not, Lord, it needs to be embedded in us because truth is on the decline, it's being muzzled, all forms of other things are being accepted and taught and embraced. And Lord, we as the church, we need to stand firm with humility and fear, as Peter says, but we need to be unwavering in our commitment the truth of the gospel, the word, its authority, its infallibility, its inerrancy. And Lord, we need your grace to protect us from the, the new form of Judaizers that are out there. Protect us from error and false doctrine. And Lord, more than ever, we need to be looking out for one another, be protecting each other. And Lord, to do that, we need to understand ourselves and we need to believe. And so I pray that you would, over the next few weeks and months, teach us and that as you inform our minds, Lord, that it would become concrete in our hearts. So Lord, help us, we pray. Lord, I thank you for, your, for my church family, as always, Lord. Love them, I love being with them. And I pray that you would walk with them this week. Give them opportunities to glorify you in however means you decide, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.